In today's episode, we will discuss part two of the special populations we serve to heal from sexual violence. Peace and light, family. This is Elegant Granny, your creator and host of the Proactive Eye podcast. Last week, we dove into the first installment of the special populations we serve to heal from sexual violence. The groups discussed were children, teens, adults molested as children, our elderly, and men. A link will be in the show notes for those who missed that episode so you can tune into what those groups deal with and what they are needing from us as supporters. This week, we are going further with part two, discussing other groups needing service. There is much debate over the terminology used to describe various sexual orientations. While some members and non-members of the LGBTQ community may find some terms and descriptors to be offensive, other members may use those very terms to identify their orientation. It would be best to be all-inclusive with terminology than exclusive. Some special concerns for them are they have not disclosed their sexual orientation to family, friends, or co-workers, and may fear that a report of sexual or domestic violence will result in the exposure of their sexual orientation. They are not confident that their assaults or abuse will be taken seriously by the criminal justice system. They fear judgment, especially in traditionally conservative communities. They have already experienced isolation from the general population and may feel limited in their support systems. They may question their sexual orientation if their offender was or is a male or if the offender is or was a female. Some members of the LGBTQ community may be reluctant to report an offender within the LGBTQ community for fear of exclusion from a community that has been otherwise supportive. Their needs and services acquired from a supporter are emphasize confidentiality in all cases, but especially in cases where LGBTQ victims have not disclosed their sexual orientation within certain social, work, and family circles. Emphasize certain services in all cases, but in cases where an LGBTQ victim expresses concern that the criminal justice system will not seek justice for them. Advocates and companions should assure the victim that they will have companion services throughout the entire healing process, regardless of whether or not he or she chooses to go forward with a report or prosecution. Advocates and companions should be very careful not to judge or insult the victim's sexual orientation. They should be aware of the isolation that LGBTQ victims may feel in a traditional shelter setting. When male victims express a concern over their sexual orientation, it means that the victim feels extremely comfortable with trusting the advocate or companion. It's important not to indicate any personal judgments against certain types of sexual orientation. The advocate should assure the LGBTQ victim that being sexually assaulted by a male or female has no bearing on his or her sexual orientation. And they should be proactive in filling in the gaps of support that may be lacking from the victim's LGBTQ community after making a report. Our next group are the immigrants and non-English speaking victims. 
Immigrant and refugee women share the risk of all women in the United States to intimate partner violence, but they experience increased vulnerabilities to its effects due to the cultural context in which they experience violence, their legal status, and barriers to accessing services. Some of the special concerns for them are cultural adjustments and trauma. Refugees and immigrants often come from war-torn countries. Many have endured mental, physical, psychological, and emotional trauma. They need the necessary coping skills to find ways to adjust to the new cultures. The lack of language proficiency, loss of social status, and lack of extended families nearby can be contributing factors in the challenge of learning to survive and adjust to this new country. Linguistic isolation. Many refugee and immigrant women are linguistically isolated and cannot reach out to others because they do not speak English. Community alienation. Domestic violence and sexual violence are frequently normalized or regarded as a family issue. Therefore, women do not pursue help fearing they will be stigmatized by or alienated from their communities. Often, religious values play a part in this process prioritizing the unity of the family over the safety of the woman experiencing violence. They have a fear of deportation. Many immigrant women stay silent about their abuse because they fear deportation. Immigrants on spousal visas depend on their husbands for their legal right to be in the U.S. They can be deported without the relationship to their spouse. As a result, women do not seek help at the risk of alienation up spouse and losing their legal right to be in the U.S. To protect against the vulnerabilities of non-citizen immigrant women who are battered, Congress introduced the Violence Against Women Act. Under this act, spouses and children of United States citizens or lawful permanent residents may self-petition to obtain lawful permanent residency independently. This allows certain battered immigrants to file for immigration relief without the abuser's assistance or knowledge in order to seek safety and independence from the abuser. Unfortunately, the provisions under the Violence Against Women Act are only available to women who are married to U.S. citizens or lawful permanent residents. I will leave link in the show notes so you can research further on the Violence Against Women Act. Domestic violence, sexual assault, and human trafficking are crimes that occur in all communities and do not discriminate against race, class, gender, or sexual orientation. However, women from marginalized communities are at increased risk for exploitation and have higher domestic violence fatality rates than their white counterparts. There are a host of different communities within cultural and re religious segments. They are Japanese, Korean, Vietnamese, Latino, Native American, Muslim, Jewish, Catholic, and Christian. For the sake of the podcast, I'm only going to talk about the top three that I deal with, mainly because if you, the audience, were to ask me questions, I can appropriately address your questions, comments, and concerns. The first one we will deal with are Latino. The special concerns for these victims are Victims often lived in large, tight-knit communities. Victims may present 
to the ER or shelter with a large number of secondary victims who want to support the primary victim and who also need services. This may be overwhelming to the victim who may need privacy. Language may be a barrier to receiving services. For the Catholic victims, they may not believe in the use of birth control and may be more susceptible to unwanted pregnancies during a rape. They may reject the idea of taking Plan B in the ER. Catholic victims may also be concerned that they are betraying a faith that already receives a lot of negative publicity surrounding priest-involved sexual assaults. For our Christian victims, they may fear rejection from their community if they were involved in activities that are typically not approved of by the church before or during a sexual assault. Christian victims may also question the status of their virginity or the use of Plan B in the ER. Christian victims who have been taught to obey their husband or love their wife may be reluctant to report an offender or abuser or leave the marriage. Christian victims may also fear that if an offender or abuser is a well-accepted member of the church, the church will cover up an allegation of violence to protect the offender or abuser or the reputation of the church. Acquired needs and services by these communities are, for the Latino victims, Advocates and companions should be prepared to accommodate and entertain large families in the ER and or shelter environments. Advocates should be prepared to tactfully separate and primary victim from secondary victims if it will reduce the stress and anxiety of the primary victim. Victims should be provided with written resources in Spanish when available and interpreters should be utilized. For the Catholic victims, Advocates should allow medical professionals to educate victims on medical decisions regarding unwanted pregnancies and should respect the victim's choice without indication of judgment. For our Christian victims, victims from Christian church communities, especially conservative ones, may need an opportunity to vent about the anger and frustration they experience within a community that both supports and condemns the victims of sexual and or domestic violence. Advocates and companions should not wear clothing or express certain opinions that could put them at odds with victims. Even victims within the same church will have differing views on biblical con content. A victim may feel the need to pray, and it is at the comfort and discretion of the advocate as to whether she participates in prayer with the victim. Understanding the multiple levels of oppression that women in the African American community face can help advocates provide culturally sensitive services. The African-American community has experienced systematic violence dating back to slavery and reconstruction. Racial inequality and injustice has continued in a variety of forms in the U.S. In order to understand the needs of victims and survivors of violence against women in the African-American community, it is imperative to understand factors that prevent many victims and survivors of violence from reporting the violence. Inequalities from historical to contemporary racial discrimination and other variables contribute to a distrust of formal systems in spite the need for assistance. Some of the special needs for these victims are African-American victims are not fairly represented among the systems involved in responding to sexual and domestic violence. It is rare that an African-American victim would meet with a forensic nurse examiner, law enforcement official, 
or even an advocate who is representative of his or her demographic. The victim may feel misunderstood or isolated during a reporting process. African-American victims may fear alienation from their community for assessing assistance outside of their community. Secondary victims may prefer to enact their own form of justice without the assistance of law enforcement. This may be concerning for a primary victim who wants to keep his or her family safe. African-American victims may fear being stereotyped or generalized. Needs and services acquired by the African-American community are Advocates should be sensitive to the victim's cultural background and reasons for not wanting to report. Advocates from other cultural, racial, ethnic backgrounds should never tell a victim, I know how you feel. The experiences of the African-American victim are unique to that population, and no amount of research or interaction with African-American victims makes it acceptable to assume that one intimately understands the sexual or domestic violence experiences of that population. Primary victims may need to be encouraged to take control of their own reporting decision. Secondary victims can be tactfully educated on the importance of restoring control to someone who has just been victimized. Advocates should always be respectful in the acknowledging of the cultural background of the victim and should never make assumptions. It is important to note that not all Black victims consider themselves to be African American. Victims should always be asked what race they identify with. Serving our college students, it is important to note students are at an increased risk during the first few months of their first and second semesters in college. Many are survivors of what's called incapacitated assault. They are sexually abused while drugged, drunk, passed out, or otherwise incapacitated. Although fewer and harder to gauge, college men, too, are victimized. Only 2% of incapacitated sexual assault survivors and 13% of forcible rape survivors report the crime to campus or local law enforcement. Some special concerns for the college victims are many survivors of acquaintance rape don't identify what happened to them as rape and often blame themselves. Some college students may fear of mistreatment by authorities, especially if the victim may have been drinking or involved in illegal activities at the time of the assault. If the school is not proactive in educating students on how to report an act of violence, the victim may not know his or her reporting options or how to seek assistance. There may be lack of independent proof. These are often referred to as he said, she said cases. And victims may be concerned that family will find out about the incident. Needs and services for our college students are victims who did not give consent, whether it was an outright no during incapacitation from alcohol or drugs, or simply a lack of resistance, should be affirmed in their feelings that they were sexually assaulted. Many victims self-blame or feel that they contributed to their own assault. Shame and guilt are common emotional responses to many forms of sexual and domestic dating violence, but victims should not be told how they should or shouldn't feel. With that said, advocates should let the victim know that the act was not their fault 
and that they do not deserve what happened to them. Victims who express concern over safety issues should receive considerable safety planning services as college students may be housed with their offender. Schools that receive federal funding are required to change the living situations and academic schedules of the victim or offender to provide for the victim's safety. Advocates should respect the victim's reporting choice, but should also emphasize that should they choose to report, whether it be to law enforcement or the school, the victim is entitled to an advocate during the process. Victims should be assured of strict confidentiality standards. Whether real or perceived, if a victim is fearful of reporting an assault to the school because of disciplinary sanctions, it is not the advocate's place to dispel those concerns. We can make no guarantees. However, we can offer accompaniment throughout the process. Victims who are afraid that they will be charged criminally for underage drinking should be assured that while it could potentially happen, we have never seen it happen. The priority for law enforcement is the investigation of the incidents of violence. Hopefully I have said something in this episode to help you understand and be mindful of challenges faced by marginalized communities within special populations. You are a great asset in this world, and it is particularly important after a life of abuse of any form to see a physician and a mental health specialist to help you excel as you recover. Let us know in the voice message on the Anchor app or by email at proactiveeye at gmail.com some things you do to help yourself recover. We love to hear your perspective on why those things are valuable to you. It has been a pleasure sharing with you today. All links to connect with us and free resources are in the show notes. Feel free to download episodes and take advantage of the free resources provided. You can visit our blog at bit.ly forward slash PE podcast blog. That's bit.ly forward slash PE podcast blog. You can also connect with us on Instagram and Twitter. The handle is at Proactive Eye. And also on Facebook, the handle is at Proactive Eye Podcast. This has been your host, Elegant Granny. Thank you for your support and visit us again. And remember, healing is a continuous process, not a one-shot deal. Much love, peace, light, and healing vibes, family. Stay tuned next week for part three, our last installment for our first annual sexual violence awareness avocation on the podcast as we complete our discussion on sexual violence and also myths and realities about sexual violence.